Welcome to Shed, a podcast brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. I'm your host, Eric Adams. During the fall of 2020, I interviewed members of our Martha's Vineyard community about the impact and implications of race in their lives. As a practicing therapist, I was interested in exploring the unique experiences that shape the lives of each guest and influence the way they see themselves and the world. We chose the name Shed to encourage listeners to do away with old beliefs that no longer serve us and to shed some light on systemic racism and its effects on us as individuals as well as the communities in which we live. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. We didn't do an intro. Hello and welcome to Shed. I'm your host, Eric Adams. We are very fortunate today to be joined by really one of the most sincere and genuine allies to the Black Lives Matter movement that I've met. We really appreciate you being here today, Amy. Thanks for that intro. You're welcome. That's so nice. So, Amy, if you would, tell us a little bit about your early experiences with comedy. Okay. And particularly... I'm really curious to know about your journey into allyship and activism. Yeah. So I was a funny kid. Just kidding. Imagine I started there. Class clown. No, I studied theater in college as a performer. And then, you know, as a performer, you think many times that you've gotten your big break. I don't know if this is in every business, but in stand up, you're like, this is it. Hmm. I'm called up to the majors. And then. You're back on the road opening for somebody for another 10 years. But for me, I would say my clearest big break was that Judd Apatow wanted to make a movie with me. And so I wrote and starred in the movie Trainwreck. And when that came out, it was in theaters and it was being, it was really well received and it was such an exciting time. And on July 23rd, that summer, it came out in Lafayette, Louisiana. A man went into the movie theater and he killed two mm. women who were there watching my movie, Jillian Johnson and Macy Bro. And another people were injured. And that was my introduction to gun violence and to the, the man had tried to buy a gun in his own state and they said no. And he drove to another state. And so I got involved with trying to help close the loopholes for buying weapons. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of my introduction into activism. And then, you know, since then, I was out actively stumping for Hillary and was on the road and did everything I could for her campaign. I actually filmed a special like a week before the election, and I filmed the end of the special as if she had won. And then I said, let me just cover it the other way, too. We won't need it, but we wound up having to use the other way. Hmm. And... I went to that first big women's march in D.C. Mm-hmm. and I I was there, too. I think I saw you. Oh, yeah. I think I saw I, you, too. You were too. there with the shirt. Um, yeah, I had a yeah, shirt. Uh-huh, yeah, thank too. you. And a hat and shoes. <laughs> that was you. And then uh, I was one of the early members of Time's Up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just had, had really educated myself about five years ago about the inequality and the white supremacist society that we live in. Mm-hmm which I wasn't tuned into. And here we are. And, you know, my focus is, I would say, because as an activist, I mean, there's so much. It's like, okay, well, what about climate change? Because guess what? That's (laughs) Yeah. Woody Harrelson said, I wish climate change could get the coronavirus as publicist. 
<laughs> but, you know, my sort of focuses are Black Lives Matter and gun violence. And, you know, I'm, I'm also like a loud advocate for sexual assault victims. On SHED, part of what we're trying to do is apply some therapeutic models to people's change process around racism, gun violence, a lot of the different social ills that are so prevalent in America today specifically. So it sounds like you went from being in a stage of pre-contemplation almost right into action because of one event. <laughs> I was, I think, I think like three days later doing a press conference with Chuck Schumer, who is the senator of New York, one mm -hmm. of the senators. He's my dad's second cousin once removed. You know, I don't even, you know, he's Uncle not. Chuck. Some people say he's my dad. They're like, is that your dad? Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's my son. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, we were doing a press conference mm -hmm. and I was, I'd been getting trolled on the internet for years. Just uh, any woman who speaks too long is going to be, people are going to get mad. But taking this new position was, it was another level of death threats, fury. And I just kind of made a decision then, you know, just consciously, like, I am going to do everything I can to help with this. And I am willing to put myself at risk. Mm -hmm to be proud of the way I'm living and, and making change. And that's how I feel about this movement as well. Any blowback or negative consequences because of your decision to get more involved with gun violence? I think I probably lost about half of my fan base. Mm -hmm. Wow. That I went me. from doing arenas, you know, <laughs> your, where your favorite hockey and basketball teams play, mm -hmm. to doing large theaters. So went from like probably audiences of like 10,000 people to closer to five. Mm, it's a big hit. It's a big hit. And, you know, that speaking out about my feelings about 45 also, it draws a line in the sand. And I'm, I feel really not just proud of that. It's just, it's, it's also just kind of a luxury to be able to live mm. your own truth. And I have a lot of friends who are in the same industry and they, keep their mouths shut because of the fear of of alienating fans. And um, and I, I just think that seems like a really stifling way to live. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about your journey from pre-contemplation to where you are now? Sure. So I would say that I've been in, I was in the stage of pre-contemplation for like 30 years. <clears throat> That's what I would say. I'm just going to be completely honest. And, and one of the things I talk about with trying to be a good ally is that you can't, there's no perfect ally. Just like when there's when someone's a victim of rape, they're always searching for a perfect rape victim. Mm. You know, like they're searching for a perfect murder with the police. They go, well, well, was did he have a drink that night? Did she was she so if you think you're gonna be a perfect ally, just get out of your own way and get over that. So I'm just gonna, you know, speak completely honestly, and I apologize in advance for my arrogance and ignorance and privilege. When I was a little girl in school, we would learn about, we learned about slavery and we learned about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you learn these things and then they say, but those are over and now everything's great. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like that was my education was like the town I grew up in. It was like, gosh, isn't that awful? It's sad. We do need to study that, but it's over. And so you believe that. And everyone's equal now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did believe that. That's mm -hmm. what I was told. And that's what was reinforced to me by everybody I was growing up around. And when I was in sixth and seventh grade, my best friend was a girl named Kiana. And 
we played basketball together and we would sleep at each other's houses. She would come sleep at my house. I would go sleep at her house. She lived in the projects. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of my introduction into Mm -hmm. her house is different than mine. Mm -hmm. I feel different walking outside of her house Mm -hmm. than I feel walking outside of my house. And I, you know, I was observing, okay, all the black kids sit at this one lunch table. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed to me like the way it was. As a kid, it was just like, this is how it is. Did you think you attached any value to it, like it was good or bad in some way? I knew it was bad. Mm-hmm. I was always wanting to be close. Again, this is not, this isn't that flattering, but I always wanted to be close. There were just a lot of black people, like at my bat mitzvah, this one custodian, Tom, Haitian guy, was at my bat mitzvah. Miss Mitchell, who was the school, like she would sort of police us outside. It was like all these like black people in their 50s were at my bat mitzvah. <laughs> and then, you know, and then I had a couple of black friends. And in like a movie, you know, if it was, I remember watching the movie Fried Green Tomatoes. There's mm-hmm. a plot line about the KKK. And like that, it was just so, it just like messed me up so much. Like I was so heartbroken about mm-hmm. this. But mm-hmm. again, I just thought, and that's over now. And then I started stand up. And I would be around friends and, I was friends with a lot of the football players at Towson, and that was probably half black guys, half white guys. And people would make like racist jokes and everybody would laugh. The Mm. black guys would laugh. We would laugh. It was like in stand-up then, I would make jokes, like kind of racist jokes. Mm -hmm. And it was me playing a character. When I started stand-up, I kind of played a little bit like of a deranged Republican housewife. Mm. I would wear like cocktail dress and heels and I would just be like, you know, make a joke where the punchline was, I don't even know. Like the joke may have been that like a black person couldn't swim or something, you know. I can't even remember a joke from my last special. But stuff that I thought it was clear, I'm playing this dumb character who makes like jokes like this and thinks it's okay. Mm-hmm. Sounds like Roseanne a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> was she like that? I think uh, yeah. So. And I remember, you know, my friend Hannibal Burris, who's a comic, mm-hmm. he was like, I made some joke to him like I would make to any of my friends growing up or they would, I don't remember what the punchline was, but it was a joke about him being black. And he just like looked at me and was like, I don't like jokes like that. Mm. And I was like, oh, like it was really like kind of jarring to me. And I was surprised, you know, this is probably 15 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And then I just, I started getting an audience and I was getting more and more successful. And so I wanted to make sure people weren't laughing at these jokes for the wrong reasons. I don't want people coming to, and I I didn't want people coming to my show and, you know, laughing and being like, that's so true. You know, so. Did you feel like that element was in your audience? I did. Mm -hmm. I did. And I wasn't comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And so. There's a real clear shift. It's like when you start stand-up, you, you don't know what you're doing. You're doing like an impression of a stand-up, and then you're mm. trying to learn how to do it as you go. You know, I loved black culture, like everybody. The music, I was at a Wu-Tang concert mm. in seventh grade, mm. and this wasn't my other friends weren't there. I just had, you know, <laughs> this different sort of um, just was responding to different things than than the other girls I was close to, and just didn't really think about it. I was part of the contingency of people who felt they didn't notice race, didn't think about it much, and thought that meant that I wasn't racist Mm -hmm. and that I was, like, pretty amazing. Like, wow, I really don't 
I don't think about that. And it wasn't until the year I shot a movie with Goldie Hawn and Beyonce's Lemonade had come out. Mm -hmm. And that album, like, it was just such a big deal, you know? Mm -hmm. And it just, I mean, it was, I still think it might be like the greatest piece of art of our generation. We were shooting in Hawaii and it was, there were a lot of women on the crew. It was a really diverse cast and crew. And so we shot a video to the song Formation as like a tribute. You know, it was like me and Goldie Hawn and we were like recreating some of the shots. And so, you know, it was during Hillary's run. I remember the Democratic National Convention was like happening while we were shooting. And and I just felt like it was this empowering, fun thing. And actually Beyonce and Jay-Z approved it. They watched it. They said, we love it, We but we want to release it on Tidal, mm. their streaming service. And so we put it out on Tidal. Beyonce sent me some beautiful orchids. And people were furious. People were so mad because the song, uh, Get Information, I also took it as like, come on, ladies, uh, like, let's get information, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. and we're getting information and it was, okay, ladies, now let's get information. But the video, the end of the video formation has a little black boy dancing in front of police and it has Beyonce on a cop car going down into the water. Mm-hmm. White people, black people, everybody was was really angry at me. What for, were they saying? Like, they just were like, we didn't need this piece of content from you. And you're a white girl and you have all the privilege in the world and you, they just didn't want it. And I felt the need to defend myself and people were calling me a white feminist. Hmm. And I didn't know what that meant. I was like, I am a feminist. I am white. What's the problem? And then I realized it was a feminist is someone who do- really doesn't understand yet that you can't just be fighting for all women equally. You really need to be fighting for women of color mm-hmm. first and foremost. The ones because, who need it the most. Yes, because they have had it so bad for so long. That's the truth. And so my friend America Ferrara actually explained that to me. Hmm. You know, she was really patient. With me, and, and I found that was really helpful. So in terms of like getting people, hopefully holding their hand to becoming an ally is I think – not shaming them into it. I don't think that that's because when people are shame, ashamed about something, they defend, they resist. But if someone is just a little patient with you and explains it, you can really move and either you can find real movement within yourself. So I apologized and I, and it, it changed me and it, it made me more aware. And then all these different pieces of art made me become more aware, more so than the news, because, you know, all that. I'm aware of is what's going on in my community and what is being written about. And the news wasn't coming to me about all these murders by law enforcement. And then I've just been educating myself since then. So some facts like just hit me, like how much of a patriarchy, how much of a white patriarchy we're living in. Some statistics that just floored me, like 94% of the art hanging in all museums is by white men. Is that right? Yeah. You know, and so then you go, well, who decides what art goes in the museum? Who's on the board of that? So, okay, it's all white men. Mm-hmm. What I learned is you need to get women and people of color in the top positions of power. And that's the only way for real change. And if you look at who's on the board, every time I'm starting to work with a company, I say, tell me about your board. How many people of color are on your board? Mm-hmm. Often they say, oh, none. I say, well, that's a really big problem. Mm-hmm. It's hard to change who's on a board right away, but so there were action items that I started taking with like-minded women. A lot of us were at an agency, you know, if you're an actor or 
a performer or an agency. And we said, who's on the board of our agencies? And nine out of 10, all white men. Hmm. And so we wanted to make a change. Let's start there because that's something that our agents are people we hire. So we can say, we want to make these demands. We want to be 50-50 by 2020. Hmm. And some people said, well, it's not really realistic. Well, do your best or we're out of here. I mean, that's because I realized for me, if I am, I'm a white girl. My favorite TV shows of the last, I don't know, 10 years. I like the show Girls. I like Fleabag. I mean, I like Atlanta. I like Insecure. But it's mostly shows about women who look like me. Mm -hmm. I like a British crime drama with a strong female lead, which is like actually a category on Netflix. So now I'm in a position in my career where I'm a job creator. Mm -hmm. I can produce people's shows. We're making this show. Mm -hmm. So who am I surrounding myself with? Probably, if I'm not thinking about it, other people who look like me. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. And then who are all the agents? What performers are they pulling in to create art? And when I said that, that being an ally is imperfect, you know, it's like I've taken a lot of action that is like a little bit uncomfortable mm-hmm. and it's not perfect. But I'm going to try every angle I can, even if it creates some weird vibes. And And by that, I mean... At my agency, I said, I want a, I want a woman of color on my team. She's going to know. Amy Schumer has requested a black agent. Mm-hmm. That is embarrassing for that agent. That's embarrassing for me. But I recommended all my friends do that on your publicity team, on your everything. Kick up the demand so they need to create more supply. How did you do with your goal of 50-50 in 2020? I left that agency. Did you? Yeah. Was it a hard decision? Yeah, just because I'd been with my agents a long time. Mm -hmm. But was Um, that important to you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and now we're starting that process with my new agency. But they just know. They go, oh, this this alcohol company wants to work with you. Mm -hmm. I say, great. Who's on their board? Anybody that they bring to me about possibly working together. What post studio are we using? It's like, I want to work with talented people. And also, I'm going to make sure that it's a diverse situation the whole way through. I would say the most imperfect thing, most embarrassing move that I've made as an ally, and there have been many. Hmm. (laughs) One of them is just, I've been on the road, you know, on the road as a stand-up. I have these two different female comics, these black women, they open the show. And Mia Jackson, Janelle James, who are headliners on their own. They're amazing. They're so funny. And Janelle, a little bit, was looking at me like, am I coming on the road with you because you want black chicks opening for you? Hmm. And the truth is, no, You're she's completely hilarious. But also, yeah, mm-hmm. this is an opportunity. You know, who do I want to be promoting? Who do I want people to see? I shot a campaign for Old Navy and Bud Light for the Super Bowl. Two years in a row, I believe. And then the year Kaepernick, people were like, you know, I think Rihanna was like, I'm not doing the halftime show. I want to be in solidarity. I'm just like, what can I do? I'm always like, what can I do to be helpful? And I was like, okay, I'm going to speak out and just say, if given the opportunity, I'm not going to do a Super Bowl commercial. If I get the opportunity, I'm going to say no to millions of dollars to make a real statement. So how does that sound? Mm -hmm. Pretty lame. 
<laughs> you know? Why? But it's just it's just imperfect. It's oh, oh wow, you're not gonna do a Super Bowl commercial. Some people really appreciated it. But I got a lot of shit for it. Did you really? Yeah, it's imperfect. And you will get for your actions, and that's okay. You just got to ride it out. It's worth the risk. Keep your intentions clear and just ride it out. Part of what you have been describing is your openness. Mm -hmm. I mean, all through your story, you have been open to receive messages from other cultures, been open to people, been open to criticisms. Mm -hmm. The police as a system and as an organization doesn't seem real open. In fact, they seem so well defended that how do we break through that what feels like denial on their part? Yeah, it's blindness. Mm-hmm. It's completely turning away from the facts, the way things are. And I think it's because they would have to completely reinvent themselves, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about it, but I know something about masculinity mm. and how our society holds on to that for dear life because it's all you have it's uh, as men like you're from a young age I, I had a joke about it it's like when a little boy like pulls a little girl's hair oh he's just he likes you he's mm. just being a boy being and a we boy. we just kind of reinforce that and we reinforce it for the women too and mm-hmm. say no this is how it's supposed to be do you think the same could be said for whiteness that people hang on to their whiteness and that we make certain excuses i mean that's isn't that what white supremacists are all about? So. Like that's what they're most proud of. That's right. And it's an unearned <laughs> it's like, privilege. It's something they had absolutely nothing to do so with. It's so pathetic. But they cling to it because it it automatically gives them a leg up on everybody else. Right. What can you say to someone who's they'd like to maybe step forward a little bit, they'd like to be more involved, but they're just hesitant or afraid? How can they get over that fear? I don't know. I mean it How did you? Well, I'm interested in in self-evolution and improvement, and I want to be a better mom, a better wife, sister, person. Mm -hmm. So I am open to it. I'm open to criticism. And, you know, with my work, with who I am, I don't know where that came from, actually. Hmm. I'd be very curious to find that out. I know, I know. The only thing that comes to mind is before I had a TV show on Comedy Central, and before that, I was on a couple other people's TV shows. I was, I did an episode of 30 Rock, and I remember watching how Tina ran her set and how lovely and considerate she was to everyone and that everyone seemed like an equal on that set. You know, her stand-in, the person cleaning up, you know. And then I would say the same. I was on a couple episodes of that show, Girls, mm-hmm. and I saw how Lena ran her set. And I was on a couple different shows, but those two women watching how they interacted with everyone, it was the most positive experience and everyone wanted to do a good job for them, for themselves, because they were part of something. It wasn't run on fear. And I think I've just tried to carry that with me. And what that means is if you're like, it's my way or the highway and I have all the information everyone's going to shut off to you. Well, I'm not even part of this as, you know, I I have a writer's room. I have the people doing sound, the locations, everybody is valuable in a production. You need everybody. And if people don't feel valued, they're not going to give you their best, Mm -hmm. I guess. So 
I just want people to feel valued. Switching gears a bit, you're a mother. Have you thought about how you are raising your son to think about race? Yes, I definitely have. But I don't know what the earliest steps will be because we're out there kneeling every day and some one day grandma and her two grandkids walked by and they said, what are these people doing? She said they want to make sure that black people are treated equally. And I thought that's a really good thing to say. But in terms of what to do at what age, I will be looking for help. But I want to raise him to be like, you know, such an ally and such a feminist. You're giving Gene the same opportunities to be in contact with diversity from a really young age. So I got a, a small confession to make. I've never seen one of your movies. Never seen your stand-up. Didn't read your book. You're missing out, Eric. But I'm absolutely one of your biggest fans. <laughs> and it really is, um, it's not about what you're doing. It's about who you are and how you are doing it. We really appreciate you, Amy Schumer. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Shed has been brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. Thank you again for listening. And if you like what you heard, please share our podcast with your friends and family. Shed is produced by Amy Schumer, Renee Richardson, Jack Ebby, Tony Phillips, Chris Fisher, and the Vineyard Gazette. 